This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, we'll talk with an activist scholar who says anti-black violence is endemic, not just in the United States, but throughout Latin America. Political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal has a commentary on the people and system that took Breonna Taylor's life. And China has the only economy strong enough to pull the world out of recession, but the United States seems bent on waging a new Cold War. We'll hear from Bar contributing editor, Danny Haifong. But first, the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations has marched on the White House every November since its formation in the first year of the Obama administration. The coalition and its 15 member organizations will be in Washington on November 6th, 7th, and 8th, putting forward an independent black politics. Black is Back Chairman Omali Yeshitela tells us about this year's Black People's March on the White House. The ritual is going to continue despite COVID-19. The fact is that the problems that we suffer from, the oppression and exploitation of African people in this country and around the world, in fact, is much older than this particular virus. And the virus we are confronting is a much deadlier virus, and that's colonial domination of our people, uh, the whole capitalist system that rests upon that foundation. So yeah, we're going to be marching and having an incredibly important mobilization with a lot of people coming out despite the fact that the pandemic is upon us. The theme is Black Power Matters, Down with Colonialism and Black Community Control of the Police. Why'd you pick those themes? I would think it's really important because right now, as a moment in history in this country, in particular, where you've seen more spontaneous uprisings, protests than we've ever seen, perhaps, in the history of this country. And uh, there are thousands and thousands of people who've been galvanized, pushed into action by the whole crisis of this social system that we've never seen before. And central to what has mobilized them is the attack on the Black people, or our people, through the organ of the state called the police. And we think that we have a serious responsibility to try and project unto the spontaneity that we see that's so important and in many ways thrilling some kind of political line that would take people someplace that will say, this is what we are contending with. And here are slogans that will be able to actually incentivize people beyond the mobilization itself and even people who might not make the mobilization. So we say the issue is black power, black power matters. We have to have power as a people, and our power has to come as a consequence of negating the power of our oppressor. And we have to, beyond that, say down with colonialism, because that, in fact, is the power of our oppressor. It is colonialism. It is definitive. We can talk about it, define it. It has various characteristics that apply to people in our circumstances all around the world and black community control of the police is the political demand that speaks directly to that organ of the state that has actually 
propel much of the protests and uprisings that we've seen happen in the country, with police killings not only uh, continuing, but actually escalating over this last period during this crisis. And the issue of the police, of course, has become something that's becoming increasingly significant political question. The Black is Back Coalition has marched for the last 10, maybe 11 years, always in November, and often during an election year. This year, there's lots of folks who are saying that the most important thing to do is vote to get Trump out of office. What do you say? Indeed, that is what a lot of people are saying. And of course, too often, what pushes our people to the ballot box in this country, especially at the presidential election, is fear of, generally speaking, the Republican candidate. It's not that the Democratic Party or any other organization offers us a meaningful alternative. It's not like they have a program that speaks to our interests as a people. Uh, We're driven mostly by fear. And that's what's happening with the Trump issue. And of course, Trump is obviously a very beastly human being. He is the, I think, one of the best examples, crass examples of a capitalist unclothed, a colonial capitalist unclothed, without any kind of disguise or pretenses. But the reality is this, that our suffering and what has been happening with us predates Trump. It occurred even with the Obama administration. It occurred with Clinton. And it occurred partially because of activities and work that was done by Joe Biden, who at a time of the uprising in the 1960s or responding to that, worked with the police and put forth this crime bill that has been responsible for something like 500 percent, more than a 500 percent increase in the numbers of African people who have been thrust into prisons in this country. And as you've often noted, result in something like one out of every eight human beings on the planet who's locked up in a prison being an African in this country. So this is the alternative that we've been offered. You can vote for Biden or you can vote for Trump. And of course, people are fearful of Trump because Trump talks the way he talks, but Biden has participated in the worst kinds of crimes against our people. And this pretext that they had the other day where two representatives of the capitalist class were supposed to be in debating and they were yelling at each other. And it was really interesting how when Biden was accusing Trump of how he is responsible for things with the police and taxes and Trump was able to reply, but yeah, but you wrote the bill. You are the ones who put it in place. And that is absolutely true. So we say that neither Trump nor Biden is an alternative, a viable alternative for us, and that what we're doing with the Black is Black Coalition is putting forth a national black political agenda for self-determination and telling the people, this is what it is that you have to vote for. And despite the fact that in theory, the election will be over when we get to Washington, D.C., we have to have a program that we can project and fight for all the time so that we develop our own agenda and say, this is what we're fighting for, regardless of whether Biden or Trump gets elected. So, yeah, that's what I think is so important about what the coalition is done doing and has done. And we remember before there was any Trump on the horizon that was visible to us, we were building this national black political agenda for self-determination, saying that our people must have an agenda for self-determination that's independent of either the Democratic or the Republican Party. And how does one vote for black power? In the immediate sense, one votes for black power by massively turning out 
for this mobilization that we are putting forth. One votes for black power in that fashion. And then, of course, one votes for black power by uniting with the coalition in terms of joining the coalition of your organization. And one votes for black power by taking the 19-point platform, the National Black Political Agenda, out into the world and to other organizations and be actually involved in applying wherever you can be done the principles of the National Black Political Agenda to fight for black community control of the police, which is one of the critical questions that we are dealing with right now. And it's something that grows in significance every day. And it's something that more and more people are able to hear, understand, and unite with. It's the most democratic demand that you can put forward. So we will fight for this on every level, every place we can. We will win this with anybody who claims to be representing us, running for office. We will organize in our own communities, willing our communities to support this demand for black community control and all of the position of the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. I know, in fact, uh, that there are several people who are running for office right now, some of whom have not yet announced, but within the next few weeks, we will see them announced, and they will have adopted the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination as the program that they will run on. And we've already seen people who have done that, and at least one occasion, someone who has won election in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, one could say that since Biden was so proud that he wrote that bill, as despicable as Donald Trump is, a vote for Biden is rewarding him for putting millions of our people in prison. And that's true. And it is a validation of everything that he's done. And it is also a horrible statement of the level of political organization that we will have acquired up to now. And the a level of political influence that a movement for self-determination has achieved, that people feel locked into this situation where they have to. I saw one comrade said that he's going to have to hold his nose and vote for Biden. And I think that to the point that we can display uh, an independent activity and struggle for self-determination, independent of the Democratic Party, that's going to be the most profound statement that we can make. And I think that will deepen the whole crisis of this social system that has relied on our participation some way or another as a validation of our own oppression. And that voting for Biden is absolutely what you've just said, that it would reward him for what he has bestowed to our community in the form of the vicious police violence and murder all around this country. And he's the most cynical, dishonest force. In many ways, you can prefer a redneck, and even that's a bad description of Donald Trump. You can prefer a thug like Trump who comes right out and says who he is and what he stands for. You know what he is going to do, but the treachery of someone like Biden who will come and kiss your babies, who will do just the worst kind of smiling in your face as it goes and stabbing us in the back. Biden is treacherous and cynical, and he has no principles at all, just like Trump has no principles at all, but at least Trump doesn't hide it. 20 million people took to the streets in June demanding defunding of the police and abolition of prisons, but that didn't move Joe Biden one bit. He still says he wouldn't (laughs) even cut the police budget. Listen, Biden, he's double-crossed even the people who in the Democratic Party that is supposed to be the left inside the Democratic Party, who now Uh, supposed to be supporting Biden uh, because uh, somehow their activity, their presence, their support of Biden is going to push him to the left. He's betrayed them. He's 
this question of defunding and uh, the police, not only that, but the new Green Deal, uh, Biden has said explicitly that he would not support that. And so Biden has no principles. Biden looks out for himself. He looks out for a sector of the bourgeoisie. And we've got two geriatric rich white guys who represent the colonial capitalism that strangles our people and the people around the world on a daily basis. And what we have to be doing, I believe, is what the coalition is doing right now is expressing the most serious kind, the sharpest kind of independent political activity, uh, putting forth our own agenda. So who wins this election will not be the final determination of how our people, our community will be able to move, but will understand that it has to move. Whether they vote for Biden or whether they don't vote at all, I think it's going to be really important for us to be able to get people to uh, the November mobilization, to win people to the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination, and to come out and collectively say, this is what we stand for. And there's a good chance that the election won't even be over when our mobilization happens on the 7th of November. But whether it's over or not, I think it's going to be extremely important for our people, our community, and our friends and allies to stand with us and say that we believe that black power matters and that we say down with colonialism and black community controls the police. I think that's going to be a really fundamental thing that can happen here. And tell us how folks can get on that march in Washington, D.C. and vote for black power. You can vote for black power by going to blackisbackcoalition.org, blackisbackcoalition.org. You can register for the mobilization, and there are going to be two days of activities. Actually, there are three days, one on Friday, the 6th of November, where people will simply get together and a small number of people and perhaps do things like learn chants and put together placards, etc., and get a sense of what's going to be happening on the next day, which is Saturday, where the rally at Malcolm X Park is going to occur. And some of the most outstanding forces, most consistent forces who've been fighting for the liberation of our people for a long period of time and, and newly mobilized for it will be there. And we will be offering up different expressions of the national black political agenda for self-determination. And we will march on the White House. And then having done that across the street from the White House, we'll have another rally at Lafayette Park. It's going to be an extremely important mobilization where African people have an opportunity to express our independence from the Democratic Party and to state this is what we stand for, this is what we believe in, and there are going to be other forces who are with us. We know there are going to be people from the Mexican community and possibly Filipinos and other nationalities who will be expressing their solidarity with the struggle for black power, who will express their solidarity and unity with the demand for ending colonialism and with black community control of the police in the African community. So that's going to happen on Saturday. And then on Sunday, there's going to be a much smaller uh, gathering because of the restrictions being placed on indoor gathering by the Washington, D.C., and also because of our own concern with the pandemic and how it's affecting our community and people around this country and around the world. But we will have, starting at noon on Sunday, a Zoom conference that some people will be there in D.C. Some of the presenters will be there in person. So starting at noon on Sunday, the 8th, there'll be a conference that will bring together a lot of uh, different folk and from the steering committee of the coalition and from uh, various other supporters of uh, our struggle for freedom and supporters of our coalition. 
So it's going to be an incredibly significant weekend, and it's going to give us an opportunity to vote independently of the Democratic Party to express our will as a community, and we'll do it in Washington, D.C., but our voices will be heard throughout this country and much of the world. And people around the world really are looking for the African community here to make a deep and profound statement in opposition to how this imperialist empire, how it represents itself in the world, how it represents itself inside this country, even as it's in a very shaky state of decline, uh, people look forward to what we do and what we say and how we move independently. And that encourages them to be able to make a statement and come out in opposition to U.S. imperialism in a much fiercer way than they might be able to do it otherwise. That was Omali Yeshitela, chairman of the Black is Back Coalition, speaking from St. Petersburg, Florida. The whole world watched as millions took to the streets to demand a halt to police killings of black people in the United States. But black lives are at risk everywhere in the Western Hemisphere, according to Jamila Amani Morris, an activist scholar working on her doctorate at Stanford University. Morris has done extensive work with black youth in both the United States and Latin America. The primary common denominator that I find that unites a lot of the mobilizations, at least, that happen in both geographies really is anti-Blackness, really is the continuous waves that state projects and institutions like the police, like reform, like multiculturalism, like rights continue to not only fail to protect and preserve the ability for Black communities to preserve and to have life but also continue to enable forms of anti-Black violence by saying, oh, we have given you these rights, oh, we have given you the set of reforms that you have asked for, but we're still going to permit that certain forms of violence be continued to be enacted against your communities, against your everyday life, without recourse or without possibility of redress. You were speaking just a few moments ago about countries like Mexico, but others that officially are quite proud of their mestizo identity, but their African roots, not so much. And in Mexico specifically, Mexico's first president was of African descent. He was also lynched. Yes, and it's taken a lot of work through the labors of Black and Indigenous mobilizations in Mexico, across Central America and across South America, to really begin to illuminate and unveil these kind of hidden and invisibilized histories, Black histories that have contributed to the building of a lot of these Latin American nation states. And that also illuminate the violence that has gone into not only hiding that history, but suppressing that history from preventing some of those accomplishments from being repeated across time. And that is all part and parcel of continuing to ignore the presence, the contributions, but also the struggles and the ways that a lot of these nation states themselves are built upon the continued invisibilization and violence against Black communities in order for these nation states themselves to exist. In Brazil, which has the largest African-descended population in the Western Hemisphere, police violence against Blacks is on a scale far higher than here in the United States. 
Yes, it is. And it's interesting. This is kind of also another one of the unfortunate synergies that exist between Latin America and the U.S. is the profound amount of anti-Black police violence. It's the profound amount in the rates at which Black people are dying prematurely, in which Black people are dying in preventable ways, in which Black people are continuously being killed in ways that not only devastate the individuals that are murdered, but devastate entire communities. And the work of anti-Black violence precisely functions not only in Latin America, but globally with that intention of killing communities, of having widespread effects that continue to devastate Black communities, Black families, Black mothers. And this is a lot of the work that someone like anthropologist Kristen Smith, who's been working in Brazil for years, has been illuminating the ways that anti-Black violence not only works to kill and to murder individuals, once that individual is killed, it also kills in a slower manner, perhaps, but through the deterioration of health, the deterioration of access and resources in communities, it continues to kill entire Black communities, entire Black families far beyond the individual. Yes, under President Bolsonaro, the mortality rate for COVID-19 among Blacks is several times that of white Brazilians. Yep, and that's been the case across Latin America and for Colombia. The rates of disparities in a lot of geographies like the center of the country, Bogota, and in Cartagena, there's extreme racial disparities in, in COVID rates in terms of access to testing, in terms of access to resources that would provide people with the protections from COVID, but also there are labor demands. There are the cost of reopening the economies in a lot of countries continues to require that Black and Indigenous life be put on the front line to reopen these economies, and by doing so, puts them at greater risk for contracting COVID. And because we also know that health disparities are tied to medical racism, that a lot of the ability for these populations and communities to be adequately treated within health systems is non-existent. And so these health disparities are always already tied to the profound and historical ways that medical racism and anti-Blackness function in the ability or the failure, really, for states to adequately protect marginalized and particularly Black and Indigenous communities from having higher COVID rates. I'm told that one out of every 12 encounters with police in Brazil ends in death, and most of these deaths are of young Black people. Isn't this why folks are talking about genocide in Brazil? Yes, and genocide in Brazil, and we can also call this genocide in Colombia and elsewhere in Latin America, is about the genocidal logics of the state, which says that Black life is meaningless, that Black life is disposable, and that they can be killed with impunity, that Black life, no matter what that Black person is doing, is a constant threat beyond any logic of what that life or what that person could be doing in the moment. And so I would say that that's not only in Brazil. There's a lot of racialized police violence that result in profound premature and preventable death that happen across Latin America and Black communities, whether it's to dispossess the territory from Black people, whether it's to ensure that those communities are oppressed in various ways, whether it's to ensure spatial exclusion, that that's continuously been kind of the function of anti-Black police violence in profound ways. And it's extremely normalized. 
it's extremely considered normative. And actually, this past summer was the first time, at least in a country like Colombia, in which there was widespread or greater conversation about anti-Black police violence in a city that's my research site, like Cartagena, that talked about and protested the police assassinations of Carlos Gonzalez, of Carlos Herrera, of Pera Morales, which happened in Bogota, and really started to name these quotidian, and they often happen so quotidianly, they often happen so every day in a normalized way, they actually began to start talking about what is policing here? How is it not ever just the police? How is it also other forms and other actors that are inflicting violence against Black communities? And what is that violence? What are those profound deaths intended to do to those communities? And how is it intended to function for the benefit of the state? Yes, in Colombia, the Black struggle is both urban in big cities like Cartagena and a struggle to secure rights to ancestral lands. And in that struggle, Black Colombians have allied with indigenous peoples. Yes, and a lot of the original mobilization in the early 1990s to get what is known in Colombia as Law 70, which was the law of Black communities, to guarantee Black communities the right to ancestral territory, certain economic rights, certain protections from racial discrimination. All of that, a lot of the organizing was done in partnership and really building off of a lot of the accomplishments and achievements that Indigenous communities were able to accomplish a couple of years before 1993. That mobilization and and that kind of collaboration really has continued as both communities have faced massive interdictions and disavowals to those rights. Immediately after rights for both of those communities were granted in the 1990s, we saw massive land invasions by corporations, by multinational corporations. We saw massacres against Black and Indigenous communities, these massacres and these invasions and these dispossessions that continue within the context of Colombia's 50-year-long armed conflict. And even after the aftermath of the 2016 peace accords, which supposedly brought an end to the Civil War, these forms of violence in the shape of territorial possession and the shape of pillage, of displacement, have continued in light of these multicultural rights. In a place like the Caribbean coast of Cartagena, there was a community that for many years was able to gain collective titling, which in a previous consult regulation, that meant that in order for corporations to build or to do anything on their territory, they would have to go through the community. They went through the process to get the territorial recognition, the legal recognition as a Black community that would guarantee them territorial protection from the state. What happened, though, a couple of months ago is that those rights were restricted and that were removed from that community by the government and that corporations are now allowed to build on that territory to remove families at will. And this has also happened in a lot of indigenous territories. This has really happened across Latin America. And so it's happened in conversation between indigenous and black communities and also within black indigenous communities is really what are the serious and real limitations of multicultural rights? What are the ways that multicultural rights really aren't able to protect these communities from different forms of racialized state violence? And what are the ways that they're used by corporations, by militia, by paramilitaries, by the state itself to continue to inflict violence 
and that violence is being made necessary in order for the government, in the case of Cartagena, Colombia, to construct that geography as a tourist in paradise. And if there's anywhere in South America that the United States exerts lots of influence, it has a huge military presence there, it is Colombia. Yes, and that influence is pervasive in multiple realms of governmentality, of an upstate governance, not only in terms of militia, but in terms of tourism. One of the largest group of tourists in Colombia is from the United States. And a lot of the kind of violence that we see happening in the name of tourism in Cartagena and across Colombia is often in service of trying to serve and market to and appeal that market. And that kind of influence and that dialectical relationship is based on the dual kind of usage and glorification and the commodification of Black culture, particularly of Black women, and also the continued violence and violation of Black life. And this is kind of what Kristen Smith and her studies and work in Brazil and the U.S. is called Afro-Paradise. It's precisely the functioning of this dialectic of the glorification and the inclusion, the official inclusion of Black life alongside the continued death and killing and murders of Black life. And we can see that not only as a functioning logic in Colombia, but we see that as a functioning logic in the U.S. as well. When tens of millions turned out for Black Lives Matter-led demonstrations in the United States back in June, there were demonstrations in solidarity with U.S. Blacks all over the world, including in Latin America. Do you ever think that there is not enough expressions of reciprocal solidarity by Black folks here in the U.S. with folks in the diaspora who are also fighting against anti-Blackness. Absolutely. I think that there is increasingly more of that work happening through organizations like Afro-Resistance that's based in New York, Black Alliance for Peace, the organization that works on behalf of Black immigrants in the U.S. A lot of those that work is beginning to happen and has been happening for a long time in those spaces to also amplify the Black lives that are stolen across the diaspora in the similar way that when um, a Black person is murdered in the U.S., there is greater international attention. I will also say that work also happening in Latin America itself, which is to say that they're also historically, in some places, particularly in Colombia, there hasn't always been this great attention, knowledge even, of the everyday murders that literally happen every day, everywhere in Colombia, but also across the diaspora. And so there's a lot of momentum that's happening in a lot of these countries to be able to know these names, to mobilize protests in these countries around these names, and to also begin to communicate and to share and to learn and to have an exchange with organizers and activists that are working in the U.S. context to be able to also amplify the ways that anti-Black violence is experienced similarly in these contexts, but also have local particularities. And so there's a lot of opportunity for U.S. political activists and organizers to begin to build these connections to be able to not only just learn these names, but learn how this violence functions in Latin America, who are the actors involved, 
how normalized has it become and what is the history of it. And there more and more I'm seeing every day call for transnational political action being realized, whether it's through being able to share stories through these virtual mediums like Zoom, as much as we have Zoom fatigue and podcasts. And before COVID, some of these trips that were organized precisely to understand how anti-Black violence is impacting communities in diaspora geographies. And so it's always been present and I look forward and I have hope that it will happen more and more. Many of the mobilizations happening right now are led by young Afro-descendants that are really pushing us to think beyond the typical conceptual arsenal that we have of rights, of reforms, of appealing to the state for articulations of Black life that really go beyond any of those frameworks. And this is precisely what has been studied by many scholars, particularly Black feminist anthropologists, as the problem of multicultural rights and multicultural reforms. And a lot of these rights that we're seeing every day be repealed is precisely the fact that a lot of what's being mobilized around transnationally is a right to Black life. And that goes beyond just, I have these land titles. That goes beyond, oh, the state says that they see me as an official citizen subject. And that's not to disparage or to disregard those achievements, but it's to say that in this moment, what's happening, particularly in my research context in Cartagena, is that people are understanding and articulating anti-Black violence as not only being done by the police, but also as being about spatial exclusion, as also being manifested in this territorial dispossession and displacement, as also being a manifestation of environmental devastation and economic devastation, and truly the evacuation of the stuff of life making. And those things cannot really be redressed through state reforms. And so in this moment, in thinking about the calls that are happening in the U.S. to defund the police, thinking about the calls that are happening in Brazil to hold the Brazilian state account for the genocide that's happened and that continues to happen against Black communities, to talk about the frameworks that are happening in Colombia that is articulated under a care for life, those things go far beyond the kind of conceptual and political arsenal that we have for really articulating what a liberated and livable Black life looks like. And that, to me, is kind of where the current transnational Black political synergy has potential is to really articulate, though though we have our different local particularities and how the state functions and how anti-Blackness is manifested and works in these different geographies, we're all in these different geographies articulating something that goes far beyond and that has no interest in appealing to the rights and the supposed morality of the very state that continues to oppress and kill us. That was doctoral candidate and political activist Jamila Imani Morris. Mumia Abu-Jamal is the nation's best-known political prisoner, a prolific author and journalist, now in his 39th year of incarceration in Pennsylvania. Abu-Jamal's latest report for prison radio is titled, Brianna's Deathbed. Her name, Brianna Taylor, has become a call to be chanted and shouted at protests, now joined by that of many other black people 
who were killed by the state with perfect impunity. A Kentucky grand jury returned with no charges against the cops who burst into her apartment, fired over a dozen shots, at least six of which struck her as she laid in her bed, all ostensibly as part of a drug raid. Note that no drugs were found. Indeed, only one cop, one who was earlier fired, faced charges for shooting up a neighbor's home. Philosophers sometimes run thought experiments to see all sides of a controversy. Imagine, if you will, that a 26-year-old white woman named Brianna Brzezinski says, who worked as an EMT, was shot in her bed by a half dozen cops in a mistaken drug raid. What do you think would happen to those cops? Black Brianna's case reminded me of a 21-year-old Black Panther leader who was shot and killed in his bed after being drugged, I might add, on the early morning of December 4, 1969, in Chicago. His name? Fred Hampton. 1969. 2020. Over 50 years later. And black lives still don't matter. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Danny Haifong is a contributing editor at Black Agenda Report and my colleague on the podcast, The Left Lens. Haifong is also co-coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace Supporter Network. He was a panelist at a recent webinar on U.S. efforts to militarily dominate Africa and to halt China's rise as a world power. Unable to keep up with China economically, the United States has initiated a new Cold War. Here's Haifang's analysis. What's going on right now with the United States and, and its policy in the Asia-Pacific is that there has been a calculation made that the U.S. capitalist economy will not be able to keep up with China's. All of the predictions from every economist, regardless of their political affiliation, is predicting that China will surpass in GDP terms coming up in the next 10 years, and that in purchasing power parity terms, China has already surpassed the United States. And uh, the calculation is that since this situation is not going to reverse itself, that the only way to contain China's rise in the Asia Pacific and all over the world is to militarily encircle China. And, and that's what's been happening since the Obama administration. But the Trump administration has added quite a lot of features to this policy, whether it's through the trade war or the so-called tech war, banning apps that China has produced, like TikTok and WeChat, whether it is sanctioning Communist Party of China officials over its so-called suppression of Muslims in Xinjiang, whether it's around the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019. There have been so many developments that have really complemented the strategy of militarily encircling China 
There's already 400 plus military bases in the Asia Pacific region, as well as aircraft carriers armed with nuclear weapons that send a message to China that its rise economically will create a situation in tandem that means a possible war, a cold war, and maybe even a hot war, depending on how things go. And that's sort of what China has been contending with since the Obama administration, but it's really escalated during the Trump period. And despite all of this saber rattling, that can't change the fact that every single country in the world is expected to go into a recession this year, except one, China. Yes, uh, China has been recession-proof because its economy is uh, what China calls a socialism with Chinese characteristics. And what that really means is that China has a large amount of state planning in the commanding heights of the economy. So the biggest industries in China are owned by the state, and the state is able to really direct those industries uh, and protect them from the capitalist world market and all of its unpredictability. And so the market in China really operates around consumer goods, and it operates uh, more as an engine of growth and less as an engine of complete and utter austerity and private control of big finance. 80% of all banks in China are state-owned. So China is really able to do things that the United States and other Western capitalist powers aren't able to do when recessions hit the global market, and that is to protect the overall economic situation in China so that people are not harmed, so that jobs are not sacrificed, so that uh, the needs of the people ultimately aren't negatively impacted in such a dire way, which is what we see here in the United States, where tens of millions of people are at risk of eviction because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis that it has precipitated. And, and this only accelerates a larger trend that I spoke about in the webinar, which is that internationally, countries in Latin America, countries in Africa in particular, countries in Asia, they're looking towards China because, because China has been recession-proof, it has not had to pause on developing infrastructure like 5G technology, like high-speed rail, like renewable energy. It has not had to pause in the last 40 years on these things because it has not had to deal with economic crashes to a degree that the U.S. Or, or the Western European powers have had to. Yes, the U.S. is trying to use its technological edge to sabotage China's high-tech industry, and it also brings to bear its power of the dollar. But it's generally acknowledged that the world was pulled out of recession in 2008 by China, and that this time around, the same thing will happen. So how can the United States get the rest of the world to collaborate with it in isolating and weakening China when the rest of the world is dependent on China to pull them out of recession? Yes, and this is the real principle contradiction where the United States cannot arrest the overall development trajectory of the world, which is to become closer with China, become more integrated. The global south will become more integrated with China, will become more integrated with Russia. There will be this overall shift away from the U.S. dollar, away from U.S. corporate hegemony. But at the same time, there's this 
danger. And I think a lot of people and commentators have made note that in China and in the United States and all over the world that a hot war between China and the United States would be disastrous. And the U.S. stepping into such a thing would ultimately bring about just mutually assured destruction. However, that does not mean that the United States won't use its military capabilities, its capacity, its huge empire, the biggest empire maybe ever known in human history, to force its allies to comply with it and to use violence, to use military occupation, to use sanctions, to use all the tools at its disposal to bully nations in the Asia Pacific, nations in Africa, nations in Latin America to do exactly what the United States says. And that's, I think, where the danger is immediate, because that's already happening. We see since the proliferation of AFRICOM on the African continent, country after country has been sent into utter chaos. Divisions have been sown. Failed states like in Libya have been ultimately enforced. And uh, we've seen exactly what U.S. policy on the continent has done to keep Africa dependent upon U.S. and Western financial institutions. And uh, the same can be expected for the Asia Pacific and for countries like Japan and like South Korea, et cetera. Um, as this new Cold War plays out, that there will be more bullying and more enforcement of U.S. hegemony by way of military superiority. Yes, the United States has fallen far behind China in terms of its trade and economic interaction with Africa. But the U.S. has a trump card in Africa, and that is AFRICOM, which has infested all but one nation on the continent with its military forces. Yes, and AFRICOM is as political as it is a military institution. AFRICOM, through building these so-called quote-unquote military relationships, is really facilitating the recolonization of the continent by way of U.S. military power. And so by doing that, governments on the African continent ultimately do have to follow the diktats of the United States. And that is why you see so much military cooperation on the African continent. You see drones flying over Kenya. You see the complete disintegration of governments like in Mali and in Libya. You have the enforcement of sanctions in Zimbabwe. So no matter how close Zimbabwe gets to China economically, its overall economic situation remains totally perilous and a marker of instability. So all over, north, south, east, and west of Africa, there is this continued impoverishment, this continued instability, which helps fuel uncertainty for African governments and, and almost forces them to maintain the status quo, even when China is so readily available, trading in the hundreds of billions of dollars on the African continent to help facilitate infrastructure development and to really, and I think this is often understated, point a way forward to a new set of international relations, one that is not dictated by U.S. dominance, but one that is shaped by a multiplicity of countries, a multiplicity of powers, equally having a say at the table of international affairs. And this includes ensuring that the global South, and Africa in particular, is able to determine their own destinies rather than have to follow whatever the United States says and whatever it's ultimately its military force and its economic hegemony 
has in store for it. So, so I think that is often understated. On the propaganda front, the United States tries uh, to depict China as a new colonial power and its investments in Africa as a kind of economic domination. But you point out that China itself was the object of the colonial powers, Britain and France and Germany and the United States, and that historically cannot be grouped with the colonizers. No, and it's it's pretty insulting because what's really ironic about those accusations is that they often come from the corporate media. They often come from scholars and so-called journalists who have an already Eurocentric and US-centric imperialist attitude towards China. So the whole framing of China as a new colonial power First is without evidence and without basis, given the fact that colonialism is about occupation. It is about racist domination, and that if you just do a cursory look at China's activity on in Africa, it does not fit the mold. That isn't to say that China is not following the market when it conducts trade with Africa. That's just the world that we live in, but it does mean that China is applying its experience as a formerly semi-colonized country, one that it was humiliated by imperialism for 100 years, in the way that it deals with the global South and Africa in particular. There is a sensitivity. We saw China guarantee that the COVID-19 vaccine, that whenever it is available, when China produces one, it will be made publicly available to Africa first. And there has been a lot of cooperation, not only with COVID-19, but also in 5G technology and so many other solar power, wind power, electricity. All of these things are critical towards just forming a basic economic structure in a society, regardless of what form that society takes. So it's ridiculous to claim that China, in helping facilitate that process, is a colonizer when colonialism and imperialism, as set forth by Europe and the United States, have only created more misery and more poverty, more inequality, and ultimately the subjugation of entire nations of people, often justified by racism. And we just don't see that happening, regardless of the contradictions when it comes to China's relations with Africa or anywhere else in the world. Just as we saw anti-Russian hysteria infecting sectors of what people call the left in the United States, anti-China sentiment also appears to be on the rise in quarters that you wouldn't expect it, quarters on the left. Right. It's a huge national trend. Actually, over 70% of all people who have polled on this question have a negative framing of China. And it's no new development that the left has negative, almost xenophobic views of China. That's been happening since the revolution of 1949, which was celebrated on the date of this interview. But right now, because China is rising, because of its prominence in world affairs, and because of its achievements, I think some people don't understand that the reason why there's so much hatred being spewed at China, so much racist vitriol is because China not only is becoming a massive economic power, but it's doing so on a basis that is entirely different from how the United States became an economic superpower. 
when the United States became an economic superpower in World War II, it was able to raise the standard of living for a large section of the population in the United States. However, that came at the expense, oftentimes, of Black Americans. Native Americans were not included in this project. It also came at the expense of nations all over the world, including Africa, where the U.S. was engaged in coup after coup after coup in Ghana and the Democratic Republic of Congo in order to subjugate them to U.S. and Western financial institutions and military power. And China right now is not only not doing that sort of thing, it's not engaging in military occupation, staging coups, interfering in the affairs of other countries, but also the conditions of the people of China have improved so dramatically. 800 million people since 1978 no longer live in absolute poverty. And, and that's a huge achievement. And, and that only is added on to the fact that China is becoming a high-tech power. It is a leader already in high-speed rail, in infrastructure of all kinds, electric vehicles, we can go on and on and on. And so I think that is where the threat really lies. And that's where the hatred is. It's almost a jealousy, but I think it's part of this unraveling of the U.S. empire and its hegemony that it can't produce the things China is producing. And also it cannot stand to allow China to do so on the basis of also becoming the top economic superpower of the world. Yes, China vows that it will double its rail lines in the next 12 years, and that includes its high-speed trains. They'll go to 50,000 miles of track. The U.S. doesn't have a single mile of high-speed rail. No, it does not. And this is such an important point, too, because infrastructure, I, I think it's it often becomes understated here in the United States because it's it's become almost like a campaign slogan for people on the Bernie Sanders side of life that we need better infrastructure, we need better infrastructure. But for the global south and for China, infrastructure really means building a society capable of meeting the needs of the people. And so in China, infrastructure is the difference between having villages isolated by mountainous terrain, by poor soil, having the access to public services, having the access to the cities and to the economic development that is occurring there. These developments help lift people out of poverty. That's where a lot of the lifting out of poverty has come from. The ability of connecting people in China, which was a majority peasantry country, to resources and materials and jobs that can help facilitate both modernization, but also the uh, economic stability of working people. And, and that's what has been happening despite the bumps and the contradictions and the ultimate issues that arise from opening up and reform that has occurred since the 1970s. All of it was done. All of those bumps were taken in order to ensure that a country of 1.4 billion people could eventually sustain and meet the needs of all the people. And I think that is something to really behold in this moment where the vast majority of the planet is moving in the other direction, is moving in a direction of decline, inequality, and global capitalist crisis that is just marked by austerity and privatization and the rule of the rich over the many I think that there's so much to learn from this new Cold War in the sense that 
the United States and working people here, especially black people who have always been the most progressive constituent in this country, to demand better and to demand more from their own governments, as well as trying to chart a new vision for what this society should be, rather than demonizing and blaming China at every turn, which is what the U.S. political class is trying to do. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.